Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for giving us this day to worship you in the study of your marvelous word. Thank you for giving us the Bible and for having your spirit inspire the writers of it. For we know that you are the author of all things good, for every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Thank you for reminding us of these simple things so that we might abide in your word. As scripture says, therefore, if we have been raised up with Christ, we keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, setting our minds on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, For we have died and our lives are hidden with Christ in God. So we ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. And may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Again, the Gospel Salvation and Sanctification, Part 68. Thursday was... A wonderfully edifying lesson, uh, sort of a softening, if you would, in our curriculum. If you didn't see it, please take the time to take a look. So Thursday was a wonderfully edifying uh, lesson, a time that the Spirit asked me to share a few things from the heart on the following scripture. Go to 2 Timothy 4.1. You may not have identified what I was saying with this scripture But this is the scripture that I was speaking from. 2 Timothy 4.1 It's such a dynamic life that we live. Regardless of spiritual gifts, regardless of where we find ourselves in the church assembly, regardless of those kinds of details, regardless of the condition in which you were called, We all have a common thread that's a common work, and that's how we're going to start off this morning with this common work, this commission that everybody in here was given. 2 Timothy 4.1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God, and again, this is Paul writing to Timothy, who was a pastor, uh, on the younger side, so he had to deal with some of that stuff as well. But Paul was writing to Timothy, a pastor, in the early church, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready, in season and out of season. Seems like it's always out of season nowadays in this area. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, Exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work 
of an evangelist fulfill your ministry? Now, that's an interesting statement that really got brought to light in my own soul this past week. Uh, because one of the things he's doing with uh, this extra time that I've got now from Tuesday evenings being offloaded in terms of teaching, I have more time to reflect on the types of things that he's been doing in the church. And this particular verse has meant a lot to that good work in my own soul. He says, but you be sober in all things. The opposite of sober obviously is intoxicated. I use that word on purpose often from the pulpit to describe what happens to the worldly believer even, the one that's, quote, intoxicated with the world, drunk, if you would, with the details of life, with things they shouldn't be intoxicated with. He says, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist. So why is he telling a pastor to do the work of an evangelist? And then he says, fulfill your ministry. As if to say, the only way you're going to fulfill your ministry is if you do the work of an evangelist. So this is another area of Scripture that the Spirit's had me really focusing on lately, and it's been wonderful. And for now, I'll share this. I'm not, he's not giving me the license to give you... This is how he works, by the way. I'm usually a few months out, possibly a year sometimes, but I'll share this. This is what he wants me to share. Simply stated, I believe most churches today need to be far more evangelical. Let me state that again. I believe most churches today need to be far more evangelical. Consider the fact that Timothy, uh, as is commonly understood, was an ordained pastor. Yet Paul says, do the work of an evangelist. So consider the simple fact, reflect on all of this, consider the simple fact that the so-called Great Commission, we'll read it before the lesson's out in Matthew um, 28, consider the simple fact that the Great Commission is the very essence of simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. In other words, the greatest show of your devotion to Christ is to spread the good news about Him. That's why you're here. So as things continue to become simpler and more focused for all of you, please think of the church as equipping you, the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Now, I've always considered that sort of um, as simply building up the individuals in the church, but I think there's more to it, given the commission that we just read. To build up means to enlarge, to increase the size of the body implying more people are saved. Do the work of an evangelist. I think churches today often spend their time separating themselves from their environments as a form of insulation. Now, while there is a certain necessity for that, I'm not discounting that. It's wonderful to be able to gather together on a Sunday morning in peace and quiet this way, in fellowship this way, so we're encouraged by one another's faith. 
Absolutely necessary. Absolutely necessary. But what does it mean to build up the body of Christ? What does it mean to fulfill a ministry by being evangelical? By doing the work of an evangelist? What does that all mean? Isn't it obvious? Are we trying to separate ourselves or are we trying to bring more people into the body? What is this all about? Why do these ministries even exist? Why did Jesus Christ give us the Great Commission to go and make disciples? So while there is a certain necessity for the insulatory nature of a ministry, the overall Great Commission demands that we take what we learn in here out to a lost and dying world. I've been getting a lot of, um, a lot, and I don't know why, but a lot of more, a lot more emails from India in that area of the world. I mean, a lot. And one pastor wrote me recently um, that, and I don't know if these statistics are right, but this is how he understands it. He had about 250 pastors um, with him, possibly under his charge, I'm not sure. But he said, you know, out of the 100% of Indians, only 3% are Christians, he said. But there's so many people thirsting for truth, looking for it. What do we do with that? Are we supposed to just say, oh, sorry, buddy, we're in America, we can't help. The minimum we can do is pray for such individuals. And then I'm praying on other things that we might do as well. But getting back to this, there is a certain necessity for insulation, of course, but the overall Great Commission demands that we take what we've learned in here out to a lost and dying world. If we aren't doing that, if we're only focusing on learning more doctrines for the sake of building up self, then I believe we are missing the mark. Again, what does Scripture say? Verse 5, But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In other words, he's handing the baton over to the likes of Timothy, To do what Paul did. What did Paul do? Paul went out and what? Evangelized the heck out of the world. And I was having this discussion with Scott. I'll tell you this in a moment, but uh, I'll allude to it now. I want you to think about Paul. How many people did he possibly come in contact with? How many miles did he put on those weary feet? And then you ask yourself, what was he teaching? Was he teaching seven days a week, the doctrines of X, Y, and Z? Or did he go from person to person, from town to town, from assembly to assembly, teaching and preaching, guess what? The gospel. The gospel. You see, none of this is that difficult. That's where the churches have been going wrong. I'm 100% on this, folks. That's where the churches have gone wrong. We've been wrong on it. It built us up. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with those things existing for a time. But ultimately, if the church itself matures, ultimately, our great commission is to go out and evangelize. 
to make disciples, to spread what? The gospel. Not more and more doctrines. Not writing more and more books that are so-called original. Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. Our job then is to get what's actually true down pat straight up so that we can do this thing. That's what Paul did. Ask yourself that question. Think about Paul. What did he do? You know the guy who wrote the majority of the New Testament, that guy. You know him? What did he do? He went out and spread the gospel. He wasn't teaching a bazillion times a week to the same group of people. He moved on and gave the gospel to more people and even more people, and even more people. And he says, I'm not coming to you here with superiority of speech. I'm not trying to sell you doctrines so that you feel more insulated and greater and more elite about yourselves. If anything, if I see that, I'm going to smash it. So you have to ask yourselves, what's going on in the churches then? Why all the isolationism? Why all the doctrines? When the early church, Jesus Christ said, I want you to have the faith of who? A child. You see this kid right here? He, that's it. He can understand me. She can understand me. It's amazing what the flesh does to the beautiful things in this world. It's stunning. It's astounding. Stupefying. It's amazing. And I get these emails, email after email after email, just, we just need to spread the gospel. So Paul says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me a crown, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Please believe me when I say this, I'm not trying to romanticize any of this. It has been a bloodbath at every level of this game. And as I alluded to an interesting side note, Fridays are my official, quote, day off. Often they afford me the opportunity to stop and take a deep breath. It's, It's wonderful. And sometimes when I do that, certain things come into focus. For example, I was driving to somewhere meaningless, to try to do something unimportant and relaxing. That's my great struggle, folks. I can't get away sometimes. I'm just driving. Where am I going? I don't even care. I'm just going to drive. It's what's great about the motorcycle. It's why I can't get rid of it. Sometimes just the noise and the wind just takes me away. Huh? Melissa's like, yeah. So I'm driving somewhere meaningless to try to do something unimportant and relaxing, and my heart was stricken with the strong possibility that my dear friend, evangelist Scott Grande, would likely be being attacked by now. A couple of days in the saddle, a Bible study. Oh, it's coming. So I didn't tell him that necessarily. With that, I did. When I hired him on. But I figured by now he'd be being attacked. Why? Because he's making wonderful strides in the spiritual life, even gaining a permanent place behind a God-ordained pulpit 
to teach, this one. And that type of personal growth slash, let's call it promotion for a lack of a better term, that type of personal promotion is always, always met with back pressure from the kingdom of darkness. So as I was driving, I began wondering, that's lay speak for the Spirit was opening up my heart. I began wondering. The Spirit was speaking to me, in other words. I was wondering how the kingdom of darkness was going to try to undermine Scott. I had left him a message, and he called me back on Friday night. And guess what? Yep, he's being attacked. The nature of the attacks are between him and God, but suffice to say that they are through channels that are most likely to have made him stumble in the past. But lo and behold, and please be encouraged, all of you, he's not stumbling. Do you know why he's not stumbling? Because he reads his Bible constantly, and he has his own convictions. He has his own convictions. That's why he's not stumbling. He sees things like Galatians 5.1 in a brighter light now. Go there, Galatians 5.1. Galatians 5.1. So it's been wonderful for me as his shepherd to see him grow up this way, to see him, and I'm not saying he didn't have his own convictions in the past, but they are much stronger now. Galatians 5.1, he's seeing things like this in a brighter light now. Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. See, the attacks always want to take you back to slavery. It doesn't matter what they are. The nature is always the same. They always want to rob you of this freedom that Christ set you free to enjoy. He sees more and more of what I see in this beloved congregation. And we had a long congregation. Hopefully, Scott, this isn't making you too uncomfortable. This is what he sees in this congregation. He sees what I've seen for a long time, freedom. Now, that's undeniable, especially when a multitude of people say, I'm freer than I've ever been in my whole life, and I've been at this for decades. So when a person stops talking and pontificating and trying to prove their academic superiority, something supernatural happens. They're set free because their perspective is totally changed. Maybe it's more like Paul in the early church. Maybe it's, I just want to know him and him crucified. Maybe I just want to evangelize. Maybe I just want to see some souls saved. People are set free. And when they see this transcendent fruit being born in the souls of the brethren, they are truly elated. So as I tried to encourage him on Friday evening... All we need to do when any of us are attacked is go back and read our Bibles with the faith of a child in context 
and freely. That's my advice. Was that not the advice I gave you, Scott? I said, I know you're under attack. I was expecting it, hence the call. But here's what the Word encourages us. says, just let the Word wash over you. Go to 2 Corinthians 13.8. So if you're feeling pressured or under attack, read the Word of God. Go back to the Bible. Let your faith be reaffirmed. For this is what the Word has to say about that activity. 2 Corinthians 13.8 For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. Amen? Yeah. That's it. If you've got your convictions, and your convictions are rightly based on Scripture, because you too read your Bibles. I can't cover everything. I can guide you to pasture, to green pastures. That's my job. But I cannot cover all of this, even in one lifetime, even in two lifetimes. I cannot do it. If I say I can, I want you to leave. Because there are some folks out there that stand behind pulpits and say, I can do it. That's a lie. You need to take control and responsibility of your own decisions. You want to be set free? Then read the Word of God. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray for, that you be made complete. For this reason I am writing these things, verse 10. I am writing these things while absent, so that when, I, when, pre, when present I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. That means matured. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Up here on the board. Finally, brethren, Paul's summary is magnificent. It discloses his heart and his encouragement to those who continued to struggle, like we all do. We're going to be attacked. We're going to struggle. Some, many of the attacks come from the flesh, from, within our, from our own bodies. But we cannot be discouraged. We have to be encouraged. We have to have courage, which is really what? Faith. Faith comes from what? Hearing the Word, the Word of Christ. Hearing includes you reading your Bible. It reminds us to rejoice together, for the God of love and peace is with us. As I was speaking with Scott about the manner in which the Spirit has been setting the humble free here and driving the arrogant away over the years, his heart was lockstep with Christ's, and it was a wonderful thing. Honestly, the greatest thing for a shepherd to see. When you see one of the individuals that you've taught for years, making these kinds of strides, realizing these things, passing tests that he admittedly, they admittedly wouldn't have been able to pass not that long ago. It's wonderful. What else can I ask for? As Paul would say, you all are my joy and my crown. 
What do you think the end goal is for a shepherd? What about all that tough love, all those times when you guys shoot daggers at me and spit venom in my eye? Seriously. You don't think I see it? I was just kidding. No, you weren't. These are wonderful things for a shepherd to see, and that's why I share them. Hopefully, you know, I'm not embarrassing Scott, but, oh well, too bad. Verse 11, finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This final verse in this book may well be one of the most concise descriptions of sanctification and the spiritual life in all of Scripture. Read it again with me. Look at it. Verse 14. Think of what sanctification... All we've been learning about sanctification in the spiritual life. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I don't know how else to say it. If you really want to know what sanctification looks like experientially, there it is. If you really want to know what the spiritual life looks like, there it is. The grace of Jesus, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The, the whole Trinity's in there. <laughs> so just do me a favor, please, and keep Scott in your prayers. You might think I'm just waxing up here, you know, oh, you know, it's so tough to stand behind. No, folks, it's real. It's real. You may never, you're not going to, unless you stand behind a pulpit, you're not going to know. So you can either choose to believe it or not. Hopefully the Spirit's convicting you to believe it. Because the Bible is profound on it. It's just the way it is. So keep him in prayer. The kingdom of darkness is pretty upset with him right now, and for good reason. He's doing God's good work for you all in the trenches teaching principles like we've been noting this past week up here on the board. The value of true faith. Faith is the only way to understand the supernatural things of God. I'm sick and tired of watching, you know, so-called good-intentioned Christians wasting their time and energy and casting their pearls before swine. If you don't want anything to do with the Bible, then we have nothing to talk about. If you don't think the Bible is the inspired Word of God, I've got nothing to say to you. Faith is the only way to understand the supernatural things of God. Faith in the world system is a trap. As Scripture states up here on the board, James 4, 5-6 in the message, you're cheating on God. You have faith in the world system, you have faith in yourself, you're cheating on God. If all you want is your own way, Flirting with the world every chance you get, you end up enemies of God and His way. And do you suppose God doesn't care? The proverb has it that He is a fiercely jealous lover. And what He gives in love is far better than anything else you'll find. It's common knowledge that God goes against the willful proud. God gives grace to the willing humble. On Thursday, we surveyed some scripture on the topic 
of faith. Why? Because the humble are the ones who receive faith. Because faith is a grace gift. And what does Scripture say? Not Pastor Ed. What does Scripture say? God gives grace to the willing humble. You want freedom? I do. I do, Lord. Then gird your loins. I'm going to have your beloved pastor write a little book called Covert Arrogance, and I want you to swallow that pill whole. No. Then you're not humble. Then you're not. Then that person ought to expect what? Nothing. Being dipsukos, double-minded. Friends with the world. Playing pretend. Coming to church. Playing the part. That's the hard language that you need to swallow. But the willing humble will say, Amen. God gives grace to the humble. So we surveyed some scripture on the topic of faith, and we found much of it attributing peace to faith. It's always bothersome when a believer is not at peace. You say, why is that so? Why are you not at peace, regardless of what's going on? Why are you not at peace? What's missing? What's missing is faith. And what precedes faith? Humility. What gain do we have in this? The only thing we have is humility, right? So if you want peace, you've got to have faith. If you want faith, you've got to be what? God gives grace to the humble. The beauty of faith true faith is that it also gives us a transcendent peace. Proverbs 12.20, Isaiah 26.3, John 16.33, Romans 15.13, Philippians 4, six, 2 Thessalonians 3.16, Hebrews 12.14, 1 Peter 5.7. That's not anywhere near the list I could have put before you. People would be throwing stones at me if I went through the entire list. Seriously. Okay, we get it. Faith and peace. <laughs> Go to Isaiah 26.3. We'll just review a couple of these. Isaiah 26.3. The beauty of faith is that it also gives us a transcendent peace. In other words, those with faith have peace. Why? Because that's the way God designed it. Ask him in heaven when you get there. You know, I'm just a teacher. Isaiah 26.3, The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he, that person, trusts, has faith in you. That's the way it goes. You want to be at peace in this world, even though it's horrible? Have trust in the Lord. And he says, I'll keep you in perfect peace. That's my personal promise to you. Faith is the issue when it comes to, quote, being peaceful. We spent a lot of time emphasizing the term itself, being. Faith is the issue when it comes to being peaceful. Recall uh, Galatians 5.22 says that peace is actually fruit of the Spirit. And once again, consider Paul's closing words that we just saw in 2 Corinthians up here on the board, 13, 11. 
Finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comfortable. Be like-minded. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. We be together. Sounds almost philosophical, but that's the truth of the matter. We learn to be. The word be is an interesting word that requires a bit of attention, so I encourage you to spend some time thinking about what it means to be, especially when it comes up in Scripture like this. I'll give you the amplified version of that same verse, 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, believers, rejoice. Be made complete. Be what you should be. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. Enjoy the spiritual well-being experienced by believers who walk closely with God. That's what it means to be. And the God of love and peace, the source of loving kindness, will be with you. So, as we've learned this past week, being and living are so similar that in the spiritual life, they're almost synonyms. You live by being, right? You, you be certain things. And that's really your life. I mean, you're the same person whether you get on a plane and go to Zimbabwe or go to the West Coast, right? You're still being the same person. It doesn't matter where you are. It's not, life is not about where you are or, or the stuff you own or the places you live or travel to for work. That's not your life. Your life is who you are. It's being who He made you to be. And that's what Scripture says. So therefore, being goes with you wherever you go. Therefore, living the spiritual life is being. As Paul summarized up here on the board, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Those are the things that we need to learn. They're not complicated. You don't need really involved doctrines to understand. Matter of fact, if you do some of that work, sometimes it gets so convoluted and complex that you lose sight of what you're trying to be what you want to be. Again, the principle on the table, the value of true faith, the beauty of faith, is that it also gives us a transcendent peace. One other verse to amplify this before moving on, go to John 16.33. John 16.33. So for some of you, there has to be a reset. So for some of you, you have to throw out the things you thought the spiritual life But I thought sanctification meant that I had to do all these things. No, look, you will do those things. God promises you will do it. But he's going to have you do them by changing who you are. Giving you a, a new self. And then aligning you, your heart, your soul, with the new self. Identifying with the new self instead of the old self that's still there. Because as long as you identify with the old self, you lose out on that freedom in Galatians 5.1. But as he shifts your perspective, your attention, as you be more like the new self, you associate more with that creature, the new creature, and you're set free. Because that's the creature that understands spiritually appraised things. That's the creature that's going to end up with you in heaven. Do you understand? Not to differentiate, but I hope you understand what I'm saying. 
John 16, 33. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. What are we doing here this morning? Is anyone here not trying to find peace this morning? Anybody's, anybody not struggle with peace in their own soul this past week? Anything not agitate you in the slightest so you lost peace? So what are you doing here? I just want to have peace. You think about heaven, what's heaven's going to be? I'm going to be like, oh, all the mothers out there, peace and quiet. Where's Lydia? Would you, you know, peace and quiet. Why? Because it's chaos down here. Kids are the very, you love them, but they're the very manifestation, the generators of much chaos. I'm just saying, if you're a parent, you know what it is, right? It's craziness. So what are we looking for? I mean, I would say, you're all laughing, so I'm assuming you're in the same boat. You just want peace. Can I just find some peace? I mean, knowing that these things aren't going to go away, knowing that that's the way the Lord himself designed it, knowing that these things are going to remain, I have to remain in the condition which I'm called, knowing those things, how do I get peace? It's very easy. It's one word. It begins with H. Anyone want to guess? Humility. Everybody's like, hummus? <laughs> humor? Sense of humor! Yeah, see? <laughs> so he says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. The reason for that survey on peace and faith was to prove to you through Scripture, that peace is a function of faith. So practically speaking, God is glorified when we possess peace as a result of the things not even seen. You know, faith. Up here on the board, we looked at Hebrews 11, 1 and 2 this past week. Here it is in the message. God is glorified when we possess peace as a result of things we don't even see. Hope we're clinging to. Hebrews 11, 1-2 in the message, the fundamental fact of existence is that this trust in God, this faith, is the firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. It's our handle on what we can't see. The act of faith is what distinguished our ancestors, set them above the crowd. So if you want transcendent peace, then you have to have faith. And God gives grace, faith, to who? The humble. It's that simple. All these people off pontificating are missing out on the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ, the peace that he left with us to have. They're missing out. Why? Because they're arrogantly pursuing stratification. They're arrogantly pursuing religion all over again. They're arrogant, arrogant, arrogant. Read the book. I'm not talking about this. This is easy to see. Whatever. They're actually easier to deal with. I'm talking about the hidden arrogance. I'm talking the one that, you know, nobody else talks to you about, except God himself. That one. That's the one you have to learn to deal with. That's the one that's been holding you back, my friends. We considered a very practical example, speaking of children, to help drive this home for us. This could 
really be anyone who's terminally or chronically ill up here on the board relative to faith. How is it that a young, ever sickly child has more faith and is able to find a greater peace with their ailments than the adults in their life? Because by faith they have accepted their lot. We might relate to this in the spiritual realm this way. We are all born spiritually ill. Though we are eternally cured at salvation with the absolute hope and deliverance from our sickly bodies, we are still strapped to this body of death. Romans 7.24. Go to Romans 7.22. That's how we're born, my friends, and this body of death, this thing that sows the seed of arrogance and death and what have you, we're stuck with it until we get our resurrection body. Romans 7.22. Romans 7, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, verse 23, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Welcome to the real world, my friends. The only way we're ever going to find peace in this wretched world is by grace through faith. Paul wrote that as well in Ephesians. The only way we receive said faith is by being humble. Being. Not knowing the definition of humility. Not saying, I'm going to do things that appear humble. Being humble. It's a fact. You could be here right now. By your definition, you're being humble. By God's definition, you're being arrogant. Because being is a state of mind. You're either receiving this into your soul, imparted righteousness, or you're just being here on your own account, under your own religion. Those are two different things, folks. It matters how you're being. And God sees the heart. So as a side note, I'm thoroughly convinced that this is why the Spirit had me write that book on covert arrogance, hiding out in plain sight. I can see all of you. I don't know who's arrogant or who's humble. I'm sure there's a mixture. But the ones that are arrogant are literally hiding out in plain sight. I can't tell. But God can. And that's what matters. That book is able to get folks like yourselves to look deeply into the reasons why you might not have this peace that Jesus Christ himself has promised every believer. That's why he had me write it. So you might look into yourselves and say, why don't I have that peace? Why am I such a miserable crank? Seriously, why, am I, why have I been perpetually miserable? Doesn't Scripture say that I've been set free? Why do I feel like I'm in bondage even to myself, to my own ridiculous mind? Why can't I get away from it? Because you're still arrogant. 
But wait a minute, I'm an aw shucks guy. I know. And you're still arrogant. But I only want to do good. Yeah, but that's your problem. You don't want to be good, you want to do good. Those are two different things. This isn't religion, folks. This is about you realizing how he's made you new and you identifying and placing the very self-esteem that you would identify with with the new creature, not the old. The only reason, so says Scripture, for these things is that a person lacks faith, which means they must turn their question, why not? Why don't I have peace? They have to turn that question to God. Minus the humility to do that, man will, in arrogance, attempt to manufacture peace. I'll just buy more stuff. That'll give me peace. I'll just have more boyfriends or girlfriends. That'll give me peace. I'll just do this. I'll just have whatever. I'll just be more popular. That'll give me peace. I'll just do all these man-made things. That'll give me peace. No, it's not. That's manufactured peace. So minus humility, man will, in arrogance, attempt to manufacture peace. He often does this by cordoning himself off from the rest of the world even. I can't take this world. I'm getting out of here. I'm going to go move into a cabin in Maine. That's, that's the solution. Yeah, that sounds exact. Where's that in Scripture? Show me, the, show me the Scripture that says, move to a cabin in Maine and you shall have my peace. Run away from your problems and you shall have peace. The problems come with you. No geographic solution exists. Trust me, I tried that. Still paying on that one. Just saying. Anybody want to buy some land? It's really nice. (laughs) We play these games. I don't have peace. I'm going to manufacture it. I'm going to manufacture a solution out of thin air. I'm going to be even more arrogant. Pile arrogance on arrogance, you know. Not grace upon grace, arrogance on arrogance. (laughs) So we often, in our arrogance, do these things by cutting the rest of the world out, by coordinating off the rest of the world, essentially insulating ourselves from the truth about our own faith. Why would we need to do that if we had real faith? So we're talking faith issues. We don't combat a lack of peace with more isolationism. You don't say, I'm just going to hack off my life. I'm going to change. I'm going to go against the word of God. It says, remain in the condition in which you were called. I'm going to change that to find peace. Don't work. It doesn't work that way. And that's what he's trying to say. We don't combat a lack of peace with more isolationism. You know, more people, people are so miserable, what do they do? I find my, my little piece right here, a little phone. It was, you know, computers used to be like this, you know, big hunk, it's getting smaller and smaller. Now everybody's like this. Now they're on watches, by the way. Pretty much computational functionality is on watches now. Applications. Now people are like this. How small are you going to get? No, now you know what they have? Not to digress, but I'm a techno guy, right? They have glasses. You take your Samsung phone, 
you turn it sideways and you strap it on a pair of like welding goggles and you strap that around your head, it blocks everything out except the screen. And they call it virtual reality. And people are loving it. What, what do you, th- you really think that's peace? What happens when you take the goggles off and there's your little kid? Mama! Give me cereal! Right? What do you think? You can't run away from your problems. And that's not even what you want. That's not glorifying God. The, what glorifies God is that you stay where you're at and you deal with the problems because His grace is sufficient for you. So says Scripture. So stop trying to manufacture solutions, in other words. We don't combat a lack of peace with more isolationism, but that's, that's not what God wants. So says the Word Himself, Jesus, as He prayed to our Father in Heaven. Go to John 17, 13. John 17, 13. The, ice, the, the answer is not to isolate yourself even more. How, think about the way we started off service this morning. What's the Great Commission? To go out, not in. To go out. I'm going to equip you. Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. I'm going to give you passes, advances. I'm going to equip you so you can go out and fulfill Matthew 28, uh, 18 to 20. The Great Commission. Go out and make disciples. Whoosh, nope, i got my goggles. I'm not going anywhere. Hey, look at this. When I turn, the virtual reality actually changes. It's amazing what people are doing in lieu of, or as a counterfeit, peace. And Satan's right there, encouraging them on. So God doesn't want that. John 17, 13, we know this as our Lord's Prayer. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world. He's, he's praying to our Father in heaven so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. That's your reality. The world hates you. (laughs) Hates you, because you stand for truth. Arrogance hates humility. Hates the whole lot of it. I do not ask. Now, here's the telling verse that we were getting to. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. I'm not asking you to take them out. Just keep them from the evil one. Protect them. How? They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. In other words, look, if this is you, right, and this side is the world, he says, you ready? Everybody watching? This is important. Can't see that far, so... I'm just making it. Look, if this is you in the world, he says, sanctify them. Sanctify means set apart for God. Where does that happen? Doesn't mean move to a cabin in Maine. He says, keep them from the evil one. And then look at verse 17 again. Sanctify them how? In truth. Your word is truth. Faith comes from hearing, hearing the word. Of what? Christ. Truth. Christ is grace and truth, after all. All the same thing. Not difficult, right? You want to be sanctified? Keep doing what you're doing right now. Show up humble, though. Be humble. Verse 18. As you sent me into the world, 
I also have sent them into the world. Oh, man. Yep. I mean, I got to throw out my goggles. No, you can have fun with them once in a while. If that's really, you know, whatever, you gyro head. But I'm sending you out. I'm sending my disciples out to the world. I left them on, on the, in the world. I'm not asking them to take them out. Because I want to bring glory to you, Father, by seeing more and more people saved, evangelized. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Our Lord sends us out into a pack of wolves. Praise to our Father in heaven to keep us from the evil one. And check this out. Did we not? Is everybody convinced now from Scripture that our Lord Jesus Christ himself, who saved us, prayed that we be sent out into the world? You're convinced of that, right? We just read it. Okay? But it's funny because. He's also the same person who said this. John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Wait a minute. Same guy? Same guy. So concentrate. We must reconcile Scripture in our souls, my friends. Up here on the board, finding peace through faith. The same man who sends us out into the world, John 17, 18, is the same one who gives us peace, John 14, 27. And since God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, says Scripture, 1 Corinthians 14, 33, we must reconcile these two facts. Our freedom depends upon it. So God's not a God of confusion. The fact that you're confused is not his fault not his problem it's his problem to sanctify you but you get my point it's very likely at this juncture that you've been so arrogant that you're stuck in that condition because you're not humble enough to receive what he's been trying to say through this pulpit and possibly other pulpits in your in your past i don't know i can only speak to this one and i know that he's been saying it for years now i know why he brought us back i think it was in september now to Part one of this series. I know with every ounce of who who I am why he did that thing. And you know it as well. And if you're humble, you'll receive that as absolute truth and understand that he's really setting you apart. This is how he's sanctifying you. So the same man who sends us out into the world is the same one who gives us peace. And since God is not a God of confusion but of peace, so says Scripture, We must reconcile these two facts. Our freedom depends upon it. Again, verse 18. You're still in John 17, right? All right, verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. In other words, he's like like the original perfect evangelist, isn't he? The simple point up here on the board is this. Faith's perspective. When we have faith, we have peace. Faith may very well be the most beautiful thing ever given to us after Christ himself, who we receive by faith. So you get the point. The theme over the past week or two is that sanctification becomes us. It's not a list of to-dos. It's who you are. Romans 1.17, the righteous man shall live by faith. 
Surrender and gratitude become our sanctification. Being grateful for all that he's done. Being grateful, surrendering, being humble becomes our sanctification. It's realizing that he's changed us. This seems like splitting hairs, but it isn't. And furthermore, it requires a fair amount of your close consideration. Once again, I say your freedom depends upon it. Up here on the board, to borrow from this past week, more on the perspective he's been teaching us, we aren't stressing out about how to become sanctified. We simply rest assured that he already has sanctified us. That is the key issue with faith. Faith and sanctification are so intrinsically bound, we might loosely think of them as almost the same. In other words, if he gives you faith, and then he's, of course, as we know in Scripture, he's going to test it so that it's dokimayan, you have the proof, it's solidified, it's cemented. If he gives that to you, you're sanctified. That's almost the same thing. Because you have, you lambano, you possess the faith. You're being sanctified. The Bible says that we are sanctified by faith. In other words, having faith is having sanctification, or being faithful is being sanctified. These are like analogs, right? Having faith is having sanctification. Being faithful is being sanctified. These are the same things, basically. We noted this on the account of Paul's conversion. Go to Acts 26.14. Acts 26.14, this phrase, sanctified by faith, it's actually in the Bible, folks. Acts 26.14, I'll read quickly. This is the account of Paul being... At the time he was Saul, before his conversion, but this is it, the account, Acts 26, 14. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you, sanctifying you as in view, from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Very interesting, right? He does the same thing with us. Think about it. He rescues us from the world, and then he sends us back out into the world to evangelize them. It's the same thing. He says, I'm going to rescue you, I'm going to sanctify you from the world, and then I'm going to send you back into the world so others can be sanctified. to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. And we spent a little time on Thursday on this phrase, sanctified by faith, up here on the board, reveals the nature of our sanctification at salvation is the great, by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which sets the pattern for sanctification, which we might think of in Romans 1.17 as from faith, positional sanctification, to faith, experiential sanctification. Again, Jesus sets Paul's commission, who, remember, is the man who later on wrote 
Romans 1.17. Jesus says, i got a mission for you. You're going to be a minister for me, for the gospel. And then later on he writes this, Romans 1.17. From faith to faith, the righteous man shall live by faith. So it's fair to say that Paul was an expert. Is that fair? Yeah. Paul was an expert on faith and sanctification and living the spiritual life. So the question on the table is, where does that leave us then? We fleshly self-sanctifiers. It's simple. We find the answer through another question. Where does this leave us then? What are we doing? Why are we still here? This echoes of how we began this morning. What does a, quote, sanctified believer do? I mean, that's probably a question we've all asked ourselves. Okay, well, once I'm sanctified, what am I going to do? Like, what am I doing? And we find out that that's really a bad question, but we don't realize that until we look back after we've already been sanctified, and we realize that it's really about being, not doing. The person who's being something is going to do a bunch of things. But you can't lead the horse with the cart, so to speak. What does a sanctified believer do? If they are being and living righteously by faith, what might their primary fruit be? What's your primary? Why are you here? To love my dogs. It's just why I'm here. To idolize my children. This is why I'm here. No, you're not. Well, then I'm going to go buy a cabin in Maine. Goodbye. Why are you here? What's your primary role as a parent, let's say? Can't evangelize a dog, so we'll throw them out. But what's your primary reason as a parent? Make sure your kids get the gospel straight. If you do nothing else in this life, you better focus and ensure that thing. At least get them the gospel and get it to them right. That is your primary goal as a parent. And then train them up so that they too might evangelize. Go to Matthew 28, 18. So the answer to the question on the board echoes of what I intimated about the current estate of the churches and evangelism nowadays. This is something that I believe is horribly wrong in the churches. That They're like islands now. They're not evangelizing. And we're just as guilty in some ways. They're not doing this thing. They're not focused. And they're too focused on building up self and, and separation. And I don't know, is, is everybody just going to come to church nowadays? Because this is where it's going. Because you can get all the lessons now from a multitude of people online. Why not just slap a set of Samsung goggles on and that will be your reality. That will be your church now. Whoa! Was that a stretch? Not at all. Half the world nowadays doesn't even go to a church like this. They just stay home. Oh, I, I, my, you know, my, my, I just listen online. Now, if that's literally your only option, that's one thing. But if you choose that as your option, something's wrong. If you have other options, something's wrong. Matthew 20, there's more to it than that, so don't get all convicted. 
Well, you guys wouldn't be. It would be the people outside the church. Matthew 20, 18. To answer this question, why are we still here? Honestly, ask yourself this fundamental question. Wipe away all your little problems and the details of your life. Why are you here? Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There's your answer. That's it. Why are you still here? Spread the gospel. To spread the gospel. What's God's most, quote, intimate desire for, his, for, for those he created? that all might be saved and come to the knowledge of Him. Doesn't that line up exactly with the Great Commission? Yeah. Well, what are we doing then? Well, I just wanted to come to church and feel puffed up, you know, because I'm an elitist. I just wanted to feel better about myself. I wanted to go back out into the world and show them how special I am. I don't care if they're... Hey, here's a coin. John 3.16. I think that's what Jesus looked like on the front. So, here you go. Wow, those Christians are interesting people. <laughs> yeah, no. Step aside, I'm trying to observe the new 72-inch Samsung television. You're in my way. Hey, here's a coin. Between. Why are you here? I know. Because Scripture is very clear on it. We just read it. He says... Father, don't, don't take them out of the world. Just protect them from the evil one. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Oh, and by the way, I want you to evangelize these people. I want you to go out to the nations and evangelize. But how am I going to do that if I'm wearing these goggles? Get the point? How am I going to do that if I'm spending all my time focusing on myself and going, until my little existence is this little box? And I'm all protected because I'm arrogant. So what does a sanctified believer do? If they are being and living righteously by faith, what might their primary fruit be? The answer is very simple. We just read it. We are here to fulfill the Great Commission, my friends. Nothing less. Go to, uh, again, go to 2 Timothy 4.5, just to echo that back. 2 Timothy 4, 5. I don't think I'm going to get through all my notes, but that's okay. <clears throat> 2 Timothy 4, 5. But you, be sober. Don't be intoxicated by the world or your little problems or your self-absorption or your arrogance. Don't be intoxicated by those things. Be sober. You want sober? You know, it's not like when you're hungover. Oh, I've got to have some coffee and some Gatorade. Not that I've ever done that. You want the splash? You want to wake up? You want to be sober? Take the Word of God. Let it wash over you. If you're intoxicated with the world, there's nothing you can do except go back to the Word and read your Bible. Be sober in all things. Endure a hardship. Yes, life can be difficult. Do the work of an evangelist. And what? 
fulfill your ministry. Everyone here has a ministry. Everyone. That commission wasn't just given to his disciples and that. That was for all of us to abide in. Our job is ultimately to evangelize. Now, if you're just getting into the Word of God and you're still a little bit shaky, maybe there's a lot less of that that you need to do and a lot more of just sitting in your seat and having things sort of cleared away the way that it's done in a ministry like this one. But ultimately, the goal is to fulfill your ministry, do the work of an evangelist. And we are all evangelists. All of us. It's true. None of us can impart true or saving, sanctifying faith in another person. So that leaves us with one simple picture of our lives. And I think this might be where I end in terms of slides. To answer that question, why are we here? We are here after salvation to spread the gospel. This places special emphasis on getting the gospel right and complete. If the Great Commission is to go spread the gospel, then what is our primary function? What's the emphasis then? Get the gospel right and complete. Hence the prodigious amount of time we've spent or been spending on this one most fundamental topic of all, the gospel. What do you think this series is all about? If this is our great commission, don't you think we ought to get the gospel right? Don't you think that's what we ought to be doing? And by now, as Scott and I were discussing on Friday evening, I hope you realize that this is the crux of the Bible, my friends. This is where I think I'll end. This is the crux of the Bible. If you ha- Look, keep reading your Bible. There's going to be one central doctrine in the entire canon of Scripture. It's the Gospel. The Bible describes accounts of where those or these central doctrines are either being reaffirmed or defended against attacks. That's the Bible, my friends. Don't believe me? Read your Bible then. Ah, That's too much work. Well, then stop guessing it. This is the central thing, folks. The gospel literally is the central everything. If you read the, read the New, don't even read the Old Testament because there's some, let's call it local knowledge that you have to understand with Jewishness and those times. Read, start at Matthew and read through Revelation. What you're going to see is literally the gospel. Jesus is going to state it unequivocally. That's why I wrote that other book on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the boat analogy. He's going to say it without apology. He's not going to water it down. He's not going to make nice. He's not going to, this is my other one that's killing me right now. You got a bunch of wimpy pastors who won't lay down the law. 
Shame on you for not laying down the law. What are you afraid of? You're going to offend somebody? Did Jesus Christ, was he ever afraid of offending anybody? Are you kidding me? Never. He said, this is the truth. I don't care if you can't stand me. I don't care if you're going to sling me up on a cross. This, uh, these are the facts right here. So what are we doing? Oh, well, I don't want to offend anybody. I don't, wanna, I don't want anybody to question their salvation. Really? Really? So Jesus Christ never had anybody question his salvation. Paul never said anything like he said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see if you're even in the faith. He never said those things? Are you kidding me? You're a joke. This is what... Uh, this thing wasn't strapped down. Flip it over. Look, if this whole reason we're here is to get the gospel right and evangelize people, what the hell are we doing? What are we doing? Making friends? What is this about? Of not offending your friends? So what? You have three people left in your congregation. Good! Those are the three people that actually care. The rest of them are a joke. And if they want truth, let them come back. Like Nicodemus did after he shamed the Pharisees. Read it, my friends. Read it! Nope. Too much work. Game's on today. I gotta throw a party. You know, it's so-and-so's birthday. I don't have time for this stuff. People are incredible, and they're weak, and they're pathetic, and we wonder what the hell are we so confused about. It's because you're arrogant. Read the book. Read the book. And stop antagonizing folks like myself and Scott. You're disgusting. Read the book. Amen? All right. Woo! That was blue gasket. You know, I'm not even going to show the video. You guys really want to listen to a video right now? You guys are like, ah, I think I need it. I need some ointment. It's a little hot up here. Let's just bow our heads. Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for making this a time of peaceful reflection, for giving us this place of worship, and for treating us so very graciously always. Thank you for revealing your love through your grace and for giving us the faith to comprehend it. Your love is transcendent above all things, making it the most precious thing we can ever cling to. May we be overwhelmed with it and may we share it with others in our lives, revealing the nature of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, for those unable to be with us this morning, especially those who desire to be here more than anywhere else. We pray also for those still struggling with their priorities, even though it's quite possible they don't even realize it. May your light shine through the darkness. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we do pray. Amen. Thank you.